welcome back to Checked is Pleased, the podcast where we do have some feelings about maple sugar crusted apple pie, but we're not going to get into that until we get there chronologically in the podcast. But today we are not talking about Biddy's baking, which, by the way, although it has been canonically raised, has not yet reached like Benjaminian aura status. Uh, so let's talk instead about comic one point. Question mark? RNH2? Hockey shit too. When Ngozi, the first couple posts she put up of these hockey shit with Ransom and Holster comics, she was calling it RNH, and then she sort of switched to just calling it hockey shit. Because okay. Ransom and Holster lost their branding. So hockey shit with Ransom and Holster, do you want to tell us what it's all about or should I? Today we're learning about chirp. It's a verb, the verb to chirp. Number one, to dispatch the competition with witticisms that lower esteem, assert dominance, and put benders in place. Quite simply, to talk smack. There's no definition number two. Panel one, we've got a fat sort of gingery looking goalie and Holster is saying to him, what do you eat for breakfast, your backup goalie? And he makes a few more fat jokes. Then, to, I guess, the uh, the same goalie, she walks up and says, thanks for everything tonight. And then uh, the goalie says, don't fucking touch me. Jack looks like he's about to get into a kind of on ice skirmish in the background over there, I guess. Final sequence of hilarity here is that uh, Ransom is getting either on or off the ice with the rest of his teammates. And he's saying... I'll pour you out like a milk bag, man. And then Holster says, what? And Ransom is like, you know, like a bag of milk. Like in Canada, our milk comes in bags. And then uh, Holster says, just stick to the script, Rans. And then Ransom says, I was just trying to be funny for our comic. And then very, very small script. Holster says, I know. And they're reading us, they're holding a, a script that says hockey shit with Ransom and Holster. Kind of creating the idea that this is like a show within the show of the comic. And I gotta be honest, it kind of is. Oh yeah, I mean, I think this directly, I had totally forgotten the script gag because I probably haven't read this particular strip since I first read it. Oh, they do it more. They do it like again in other hockey shifts. I remember the scientists and the blackboards, but I forgot about the script. So this is like quite interesting to me because I think it fits right in with the conversation about like, what is the role of this and of these comics? And also what is the relationship between the reader and the comic and like the fourth wall? I mean, actually on and off, we've been talking about the idea of the paratext or things that are sort of floating around non-canonical, but not necessarily non-canonical extra canon spaces of a fandom or a media product. I did some, I did some looking online and um, I started thinking about the idea of the parafictional. I found an article here from the Critical Theory Journal October from summer 2009 this is uh, written by Carrie Lambert Beattie, and it's an article called Make Believe, Parafiction and Plausibility. And indeed, it's talking about some, like, art. Nobody cares about that, so I'll just skip over it. But eventually, we get to the idea of the parafictional. 
Like a paramedic as opposed to a medical doctor, a parafiction is related to, but not quite a member of the category of fiction as established in literary and dramatic art. It remains a bit outside. It does not perform its procedures in the hygienic clinics of literature, but has one foot in the field of the real. Unlike historical fiction's fact-based but imagined worlds, in parafiction, real and or imaginary personages and stories intersect with the world as it is being lived. This is interesting to me primarily because I study experimental writing. I don't myself write sort of semi-fictional, semi-non-fictional work. I like to be fictional because as soon as things get non-fictional, I'm like, well, that's boring. Goodbye in my own writing. But I study experimental writing and think a lot about the blurring boundaries between fiction and nonfiction in like a professional way, which is probably not interesting to anybody, but whatever, that's the thing I do. And so that is interesting because it's in conversation for me with this idea of autofiction, which I don't know if you've heard of autofiction or know much about it, Um, but it is uh, or, or, or auto theory, which is a way of mixing sort of memoir-ish texts and critical theory in exper- usually experimental or somewhat experimental ways that also blur the fourth wall. So what I'm saying is that Ngozi is in conversation with like post-structuralist. Okay, that's like what I'm saying. The parafictional. I mean, what you have, I guess, in these hockey shit comics is basically a framing device. The characters are stepping out of the narrative of the comic, which is fictional, and into the real world that we also inhabit, where they're breaking the fourth wall by communicating to us directly. These are paratexts, these things that are surrounding check, please. But I think a lot of the discussion of Johnson and what's meta and Biddy's Twitter sort of like interacting with the real world, these are all ways in which the story of check, please, which is a fiction, is breaking through that into the world that is the world we also inhabit. And we talked about this a little bit the last time we talked about hockey shit with Ransom and Holster. And, you know, you made some points about the ways in which the comic is sort of reaching out or extending itself toward the reader. So I don't know. I I thought this was an interesting thing to bring in. The one thing I'd add here from the article is post-simulacral, parafictional strategies are oriented less toward the disappearance of the real than toward the pragmatics of trust. I guess I'm kind of thinking about it in terms of the comic's own conversation with its genre. Like when we talk about things like meta, when we talk about things like Ransom and Holster and like hockey shit and so on. For me, that's the comic commenting in its own relationship to sports narratives and romance narratives. This is this obviously is a sports narrative commentary. And then like Biddy and Jack, et cetera, is a romance narrative that's being, I think, at first pushed on and then sort of like submitted to. I think there's also something here where there's a deconstruction of a sports narrative that then eventually gets submitted to. So I don't know. I'm kind of interested in in thinking about how the comic questions its own narrative framework and then maybe ultimately continues to or maybe ultimately doesn't continue to question it. I mean, I want to say that it sort of stops questioning it, that it stops questioning it at a certain point and also that it stops pressing out against the boundaries of its own universe and into ours in a way that calls attention to the hyper-reality of it. I think it begins to take its own story really seriously and plays everything really sincerely. Not that I think that it was not 
sincere before, but I think there was a bit more of like a wink going on, like while these things were happening, like, oh, you know, these two guys are going to end up kissing because it's that kind of comic. But it turned into a really serious, like, no, these two guys are going to kiss because it's that kind of comic. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this is also like something I've been thinking about lately, not only in relationship to Check, Please, but definitely in relationship to Check, Please, is like representation and sort of the conversation about representation that was ongoing while Check, Please was being written because it really changed. I mean, my experience of the conversation around what representation is and should look like, what people should be writing and shouldn't be writing, what's moral to write, what's immoral to write, all of that stuff got heavily discussed and politically charged during the writing of this comic, in my experience of the internet. And I guess I'm curious how that kind of like lean, like maybe impacted the way that the comic pushed out against its own boundaries and then didn't. Because I agree, I think it like at one point there stops being a wink at the audience and instead it just really commits to what it's doing. Do you want to know what was going on like in the real world of hockey at this point? I absolutely do. Yeah, um, I don't know if I'm going to continue up with this bit, maybe only when interesting things happen. But, you know, I have been sort of, as we've been going along, looking into, like, what was going on, like, in the hockey world while these strips were posting. I feel like the context of, like, the Blackhawks having just won this second Stanley Cup is probably, like, a really big deal culturally, but also she's like, you know, drawing fan art at this point of her characters watching like Hawks Bruins games. I think we can safely make an argument that the actual hockey world was being looked at. Right before this comic initially posted on July 7th, 2013, on the on the 4th of July, Tyler Tyler Sagan was was traded to um, Dallas by Boston. And I was looking at ESPN articles from like the time around when the strip was posting. Asked if the Bruins were fed up with Sagan's so-called off-ice issues, Chiarelli downplayed it. I don't think so. I mean, we're talking about a good player, he said. Our job, my job as manager, our coach's job, we have to get the best out of our players. I have to supply them with players. He has to get the best out of them. No player is perfect, either as a player or an individual. All his stuff mushrooms into a proliferation of items on social media, and I get overwhelmed by the number of stuff that comes out. Maybe some of it is true, but I know not all of it is true. And this kid, Tyler is a 21-year-old. He is a good kid. He's got a good heart and he's going to continue to grow up. I think this is like interesting, not because I'm so interested in like this particular guy, although he's kind of like <laughs> one of the more interesting guys in a league full of deeply uninteresting ones. I second that. I have like a real soft spot for Tyler Sagan, which I'm not proud of, but it's there. It's because Eric Biddle tweeted at him that one time. The way that this guy is talking about his player is is very similar to sort of like hockey speak. We'll maybe encounter some references to as the, the comic goes along this like weirdly neutral, like textureless nothing that you can read so much into. I think I've seen some fanfics where behavior that's modeled on like this particular anecdote is part of the story. This is the kind of stuff that starts to leach into a certain kind of like check please fanfic. These conversations about like 
people fucking up, who's going to get traded. Like, this is the kind of, like, culture that forms this fandom backbone of a lot of the talk and a lot of the thick about real hockey within the Shaq Please world. Put a pin in this because there is a character in Shaq Please who I think a lot of writers use as a way to discuss issues from like actual hockey business and hockey RPS related themes. But we don't know that that character exists now, so we can't talk about it. Uh, the other thing that was going on around the time that this uh, strip was being posted in the actual hockey world, this happened on July 10th. Again, I'm quoting from ESPN. Justin Bieber unwittingly committed a hockey no-no by standing on the Chicago Blackhawks logo in their dressing room at the United Center where he performed Tuesday night. Well, maybe we can revisit that when we talk about superstitions, which will come up uh, at some point in the actual comic. Although it, I think it has come up, it comes up in the extras fairly early. I went back to revisit some of the early extras because I was looking for a specific thing and, and it comes up relatively early. But it comes up in the comic eventually. Talking about going back and looking at the rest of the comic, I actually tonight went back and flipped through the entire comic because I was looking to find examples of fat characters in this comic. Do you want to know how many I found? I have a suspicion as to what the answer is, but yes, do tell me. Yeah, well, it's, it's only this one guy in this trip. Yeah, that's what I thought. Just to be like totally upfront about this, I'm not offended by this. I have seen people make this observation before, so this isn't like new. But since we stumbled upon it by reading through it, I just thought it was worth mentioning. Yeah, I'm not especially offended by it either, which I say as like that person who's sure been told about her body all the time by many people at many capacities. Yeah, I'm not offended by this either, but I do think that it's something really interesting that I, I want to think about because this comic... In its context, there were a lot of conversations that I remember having, some more diplomatically and some less diplomatically, about uh, about homophobia in this comic and the way that it shows up in the world of hockey. And whether homophobia specifically, but also other kinds of bigotry, shows up in this comic at all, if it's dealt with, if we should write about it or shouldn't write about it, if it's appropriate to expect it or not expect it, if I'm an edgelord, etc. And so it's really interesting to me that, like, on hockey ice, dudes were calling each other like every gay joke in the book. Like, I am completely certain that that happened. It's probably still happening, although I don't know to what extent in the NHL, but on college campuses, I would assume it's still happening. Certainly when I was in college and in high school, it was a frequent word used in the hallways and on the sports fields, like whatever. Um, so it is interesting to me that it's not included in this strip, which is about chirping. I think that's totally fair. Like, I don't think she should necessarily be throwing around, like, this comic is clearly not a, a serious deconstruction of hockey culture, at least at this time. So it's interesting to me that the choice that she makes are, are these, like, yeah, kind of offensive, but ultimately not so horrible uh, uh, jokes about someone's weight. But they're mean. They're still pretty cruel. Like, to make, like, a maybe you'd get the puck if it was a donut thin ice joke followed by, like, a low-key boundary-crossing joke is not kind. 
it's not fuck you, you like fill in bad word here, but it's, it's not kind. And so I'm really interested to revisit this strip to see that cruelty or to see that unkindness when the argument about this comic's interest in kindness and empathy and deconstructing toxic masculinity was so prevalent in my memory of talking about the comic in like starting around like year three when I got really involved in the fandom. It's like people being mean to each other. Not to get too, I don't know, anthropological or like sociological, but it's part of this regulated cruelty in a sanctioned venue, part of like a code of honor that guys on a hockey team are upholding. And the other thing they do, league permitting, along the same lines is beat the crap out of each other. Yeah, absolutely, right? This ritualized violence, totally. But here, in uh, this particular chirp strip, it's, it's being presented like this cute thing that, again, thinking back to things we talked about in the first hockey shit strip about slow, this is part of like the cute, fun culture that made this comic a thing in the first place. To your comments a couple of minutes ago, before I started talking, about is this part of like a deconstruction of toxic masculinity, which is what this comic got a lot of credit for in later years. No, I do not think that, like, I think everything in these strips is being presented like it's a fun, cute thing that makes this, like, a fun, wonderful game. And the thing is, like, I think it probably is, and I think it probably does, if you're, like, on the right side of things. Being part of a winning team that's having a lot of fun verbally and physically beating the crap out of an opponent, that's a lot of fun. That kind of belonging is seductive and makes you feel really good. I think it's probably part of what is alluring about this culture, although I will also say this comic from the get-go is always just sort of, again, it's like skirting the boundaries of a little sinister, but like in a fun way, like a little like tinge of darkness around the edges that like makes something alluring. And like, oh, this is actually like really dark and you know, people are actually being really shit to each other. Yeah, I think that's part of what makes the tension of the first comics as, as it starts to unfold really effective actually, right? is that there is the chance that underneath the fun we'll find toxicity. And we do. Like, this is toxicity, right? Like, saying someone like, you're fat. Things for last night, like, implying that, like, you fucked them. Right, right, right. That's toxic. And so it adds this... I mean, when I'm thinking about it in terms of things that eventually unfold with Biddy coming out and so on, it adds a real sense of potential consequence. And that's... I mean, we'll talk about this more as we kind of continue to watch the story unfold. But that sense of darkness is not only alluring, but it also serves as the kind of friction that makes a happy ending really satisfying because it might not have been happy. There was a very real possibility, however slight, that Ransom and Holster are going to be assholes because we see them be assholes. And I would argue that it doesn't actually happen. I wonder if that potential tension remains in play, and if so, for whom? 
probably not Biddy, maybe other characters. But I think that's one of the things about the writing of this early part of the comic is that little feeling of a potential consequence. Why don't we see any more fat characters in this comic? My assumptions would be that it is about athletes and there are assumptions about what athletes look like especially in relationship to conventional sports narratives and conventional romance narratives, which this is, again, a conversation with. The comic, although it's deconstructing hockey to some, in some way, it's not actually that interested in social commentary. So, like, why would you engage with a particular visual narrative which might demand a kind of social commentary? And maybe, I mean, I, I can't speculate as to authorial intent, but my guess is maybe that's not something that Ngozi is familiar with and wants to write about. I don't have a personal problem with it. I feel like, you know what, these probably are like the kinds of chirps that people say. And I think they're clearly intended to be jokes that you're flinging at somebody in like a sporty jousting context. So it's like, I don't know, I'm not like personally offended by it. It did occur to me that like, well, you know, the vast majority of people who populate the main and secondary and tertiary and quaternary fourth tier cast here. I mean, yeah, you know, they are the types of people who in real life would be more likely to have an athletic build. But then there's also like plenty of scenes where it's like a crowd or there's journalists or there's other people at the game or a family party scene or girlfriends of people are introduced. So you can always throw in some different body types in the background. Okay, again, coming from the South Park fandom, One of the four main characters is a big fat guy, and I'm friends with a lot of fan artists, and I have heard many of them say that drawing fat people is hard because it's just not what you're taught to look at. It's not what you're taught to think about. Imagining bodies that like function and are put together in other ways is difficult. The fact that like people wear their size, even, you know, in terms of like thinness or athletic builds, like people wear their bodies and like hold their bodies differently. So most people, cartoonists perhaps included, are just not that great and thoughtful and confident about drawing bodies other than just stick figure lying down the middle. This is where the shoulders go. This is where the boobs go, pecs, that type of figure. So I think that may be part of it. But the main thing I'm thinking through and the main reason why I wanted to kind of like follow this through in a way that's sort of like reflects on the rest of the actual comic is that, as you stated, this is a comic that gets a lot of credit for being great about representation, but even that is very qualified. It's only in a very particular, very limited sense. You're only ever meeting elite athletes and students at a highly elite college. You're only ever meeting people who have certain types of bodies. Everybody in this comic is at a certain socioeconomic level. 
And even the people who we meet who maybe are, like, different in some ways largely conform in the rest of them. Biddy is obviously super challenging to some masculine stereotypes, but he's still, like, an able-bodied, normative attractive, thin, perfectly typical man in, like, so many ways. And that's not me saying, yeah, fuck this comic. It's not actually doing a good job representing things, therefore we ought to criticize it. It's more just, I'm noting. So I'm gonna be controversial here and say that I, while I appreciate a lot of the things that the conversation about representation has done, I find the idea of representation to often be quite limiting um, in the kinds of stories that people want to tell and are interested in telling and feel able to share publicly. Representation is inherently in conversation with respectability politics, I would say. It's inherently in conversation with these sort of normative, let's call them, expectations about who people should be and what they should look like and what they should think. There's nothing wrong with, in my view, critically writing about things that are not appropriately representative for a given community, for like a more mainstream audience, like that's fine. People have been doing that for as long as people have been writing stories. And other people have been criticizing them for as long as that's been going on, which is how you end up with like Pamela and Shamala and like all of that stuff in the 18th century until now. But I am curious about the conversation around this comic and its representation, not only because, right, its representation is extremely limited, but also like, is that a worthwhile I mean, it is. Representation is worthwhile. That's why we're having conversations about it, because for so long, people were not being represented in positive ways. That's like where the own voices movement came from in publishing and so on, right? There's also, it's worthwhile to ask what kinds of stories become possible or impossible based on whether a piece of work is going to be qualified as good representation. And what is good representation? Like, is this good representation? It's a good representation of chirping, like, I guess, right? Is that something that needs to be represented? I don't know. I just think it's worth thinking about the way that this comic engages in its own, again, its conversations with its own genres and with its own criticism and its own sort of legacy, for lack of a better word. I don't know if Checklist has a legacy. As a comic, which is doing something other comics haven't done in the way that it's talking about queer identity or and sports um yeah i mean i guess my my main point in this is is not to say you know fuck ngozi fuck this comic there's only one fat guy canceled this is a call out post for shitty for making like an i fucked you joke this is me making two points the first is that it's foolish to approach Checkley's as if it's like flawless piece of media because things can be both better than a lot of things and still fall short of maybe what you'd hope for. And I think the conversation about this comic gets reduced to a lot of times, oh my God, perfect work of art, or oh my God, total piece of shit. And it's neither of those. It's both of them sometimes, but most of the time something else. So I think that's important to keep in mind. The other thing is the sort of larger issue of like, am I taking this comic to task for like 
not doing a good job, like, you know, representing bodily diversity. Speaking as um, a ginger, like, I'm very well represented in this particular comic. It's worth noting in some ways, if only because the fact that, you know, a fairly talented cartoonist thinks about what a group of people looks like and what a group of people looks like to them when they have the ability to draw whatever that means to them. Like, what that looks like is not what the actual world looks like, is a symptom of a world where we're repeatedly fed media images such as that we form in our own minds ideas of what the world looks like and should look like that are unrealistic or not true or arguably harmful or whatever. My trying to put this into context is merely an attempt to put it into context, not to condemn it necessarily. Although it is true that like by the time you're in year four and you're drawing like giant stadiums of people, like you could throw in like a couple different body types. But I guess at that point, probably the artist doesn't care anymore. I want to second that I'm not interested in condemning this work or canceling anybody or calling out Ngozi for whatever reason. Um, I'm just interested in thinking about it through a critical lens of various kinds, particularly because of when this comic is being drawn, which is 2013 to 2020. That's a period where in my life, a lot changed. The conversations people were having about representation in publishing and more broadly in other kinds of media changed a lot. I just think it's worth thinking about the fan context, um, the kinds of conversations fans were having about representation at this time and as we go forward, how that shifted out into the broader media scape. That's what I'm interested in. Ngozi is a really talented author, well, artist, and a, a fairly talented author, I should say, actually. <laughs> Maybe a very talented author and just got tired, like, I don't know, we can examine that. Who was doing interesting things in a complex world, and it's just worth looking at how those things intersect. Bagged milk? Yeah, tell me about it. Oh, I looked into it. I looked into it. Um, actually, apparently, according to statistics, most of the milk in Ontario does come in bag. Everybody has like a pitcher, like an open top pitcher, and they snip the corner of the bag of milk and they put the bag of milk in the pitcher and then they just pour out of the bag of milk out of the pitcher. The reason why milk is like this in some parts of Canada, especially Ontario, is because up until the 60s, you know, the modern world, they were using glass milk bottles and those were apparently uh, hard, hard to have a glass milk bottle because they're heavy. And also Canada switched to the metric system. So they needed to start selling their milk in a different type of thing that could be uh, measured in liters rather than ounces, I guess. I went on the internet and I looked this up and apparently this is less common outside of Ontario. Ransom, he's not coming out of nowhere. They're common in Ontario. I think they're also somewhat common in the Maritimes and in Quebec area to some extent, but not in the rest of Canada. So it's a regionalist if you assume all Canadians drink out of bagged milk. I will I say in the, in the panel where, where Ransom is saying, I'll, I'll pour you out like a milk bag. I like that Jack is sort of rolling his eyes. This fucking guy. 
I also, I'm like really interested in it. So, so Jack's rolling his eyes. The coach is not paying attention. I forget which coach that is. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Holster is looking at Ransom like, what's up with this guy? And Biddy's got this like bright eyed little like face in the corner. So cheerfully looking at Ransom, like threaten someone. Yeah, this this is my world. But the more that I think about this insult, the more I'm like, who would say I'll pour you out like a carton of milk? Like, it's not an insult. This was just just so that Ngozi could make a milk bag joke. And frankly, you know, it could have been stronger. Pretty, pretty contrived. But people say that Check Please is so funny. I do think Check Please is at times quite funny. I, I mean, I giggled when I read this, but you know, I'm not above laughing at a contrived joke. Stuff, the stuff about like, you know, a bag of milk and it's like, oh, it's, I was just trying to make her comic funny. It's Coach Murray, by the way. Okay, thanks. All right, let's, uh, let's stop here and take a break because we didn't do that for a couple episodes and then we, uh, we went real long last time. Take a break. In October 2014, on the 21st, actually, Ngozi, as Biddy, tweeting at OMG Check Please, wrote, Chirping and flirting are variants on the same idea. And this has become sort of, I think, like mimetic within Check Please fandom to describe how the relationship between Biddy and Jack forms. And of course, ultimately, um, Ngozi edited and collected some of Biddy's tweets, basically telling his love story with Jack into a separate publication called The Chirp Book. On the back cover of The Chirp Book, it says, chirping and flirting are variants on the same idea. And the idea that Jack and Biddy get together is in a lot of ways sort of sewn throughout the tweets. I think it has been conveyed as a process of them basically like flirting via chirping. But the question I wanted to put to you, Tomato, is are chirping and flirting variants on the same idea? And if that is something you actually believe, what does that say about you? Just to briefly talk about the tweet in relationship to the comic, my experience of reading the tweets and reading the comic is that I did not see Jack fall in love with Biddy in the comic. I saw it in the tweets. So that's an important part of this. I don't know that chirping and flirting are variants on the same idea. I'm not one to flirt much anyway, so perhaps I'm not an expert in sort of like the flirting domain. I find flirting to be very stressful. And in my real life, sometimes when I'm just sarcastic because I'm nervous, sometimes people have assumed I'm flirting. So there appears to be a cultural idea that chirping and flirting are related, but my actual experience is like panic. So I don't know. I do think that the idea that chirping and flirting, right, is a cultural idea, that that they're variants on the same idea, which is that there's a sort of sparking tension between two people and it can 
come out as antagonism or it can come out as romance or it can go through antagonism into romance or go through romance into antagonism. And so I don't know whether it's actually true in like this consensus reality that we all in, like we all inhabit, but I think in media there is a truism there because it is a trope that's explored again and again and again in romantic comedies. And that's true in fanfic for sure when you have like enemies to lovers. So I think for the purposes of this comic, yeah, I think it's a truism in the world of the comic. In the actual world, I don't know that it's true, but I know that it is such a part of media that it is treated as true. I don't believe that Jack and Benny fall in love. Well, apparently that was so funny. The tomato collapsed on the floor. Well, you want to know what? Don't laugh at what I think. Like, okay, so you like made fun of each other like three times over the course of one year of college as part of like ritualized fun making on your sports team. We'll see if I'm like convinced at the end of this. I remember when I first got into Check Please, people would be like, what would these two people see in each other? And I had like a really, really like detailed answer that I think was pretty sound and was a good answer to the question, what would these two people see in each other? However, I don't think the comic answers it with that or anything else. I have read all of the tweets, like cover to cover, tweet to tweet. I, you know, the things that Jack says that are like construed as chirping are things like, you know, you bake 17 pies in September. Is that how people fall in love? They're like, I counted how many pies you baked. Like, I just, it's, is it? I don't know. It's, so just like also disconnected from like what chirping is established as and what I understand it to be in actuality, which is like being funny but mean at the same time to somebody you don't like, like an opponent. I also think there's something kind of interesting in chirping and flirting now that I'm sort of like mulling over this, um, which is although chirping is funny or supposed to be like often not funny but supposed to be funny there's also this element of shame i think right this the element of shame is you are weak and i am smarter and physically stronger than you and therefore i will press on this tender spot like your fatness your weakness your lack of masculinity your like gayness whatever that's gonna be a double victory over you, that I will both shame you and that I will like physically steal the puck from you or whatever. Putting that in conversation with flirting is really interesting, especially because I think Jack and Biddy fall in love for a given value of what falling in love means, right? Which again is in conversation with the genre of romance, which has very little to do with real life decisions to build a life together follows a particular series of patterns, beats, and social roles. I'm really curious about how shame and dominance and interest in those things might relate to Jack and Biddy's relationship. I mean, my fanfic history is a thesis in this already to a certain extent, but I don't know. I'm really interested how that shows up in the comic and how this idea of sort of like social control through chirping, which is what it is, right? You're fat, I'll control you because I'm not fat, therefore I'm more powerful or whatever. How does that play out when we look at Jack and Biddy's relationship and the way that power kind of 
transfers back and forth between them in different ways. Is there shame? Like, is there a dominance narrative there? Why would people who purportedly like want to make out and build and get married and I don't know, have a deeply dysfunctional marriage for 50 years, like why would they open the door to that through insults? Like, like, I don't know. I mean, there's this narrative about the pulling the pigtails on the playground because, you know, you don't, you can't express the feeling that you're having around. I believe the phrase pigtail pulling is used by Ndozi or in some extra or something somewhere. I'm not sure where, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to hunt it down like just for this episode certainly not while we're like in the middle of recording but no i literally think that the phrase pigtail pulling is is used and um i hate that that's one of the many things that i hate about romance as a genre is the idea that being mean to somebody is how you make them like you or that a natural expression of liking somebody should be like making fun of or teasing or being mean to them But I think there's something about this idea of pigtail pulling, which is also really gendered, right? Like, who pulls the pigtails? Who has pigtails? I mean, it doesn't have to be gendered. Certainly, it's not always used in a gendered way, but the phrase itself has an implicit gender situation happening in it. I have to tell you that in my real-life experience of people fucking, like, doing things to me that were not kind. I was never like, take me now, you know, but that maybe that's me, I don't know. I think developmentally, it's true that children are not great at self-regulating. They don't have the developmental skills, the social skills, the context, the like training to regulate their emotions that well. Hopefully you have an adult in your life who can like teach you that, but if you're Jack Zimmerman, I, who knows? I don't know that it is a natural instinct that when you have an emotion too big to express or too complex for your emotional vocabulary as a young person, I don't know that it's a natural instinct for that to turn into violence, teasing, meanness, cruelty, etc. I think it might be attached to particular gendered expectations and particular narratives that we have about gendered expectation. That's not to say that you have to follow a particular gendered narrative, that you can't feel that impulse if you don't belong to this particular dynamic, but I don't know that I would call it like natural. And so that's where I get really curious about the how that then shows up in adulthood. For me, this is related to like negging. It's hard for me to see this as outside of its relationship with the story that Ngozi is interested in telling that has a relationship specifically to the romantic comedy. Because that's where that trope is successful. Like, I don't know that it's successful in real life. If it is, what kind of relationships come out of it? I don't know that they're good ones, but in rom-coms, it's always like, oh, ha ha, I'm being teased. Now we're in love. All right, then is Check Please just a rom-com? No, it's also a sports narrative. It's both. But, but I mean, but the way that those things intersect is complicated. And I don't know that it started out as a rom-com. Or it did. I mean, it very did obviously start out as a rom-com. Like, I think that from the, as soon as Ngozi starts making these like little winky blog posts where she's like, will they, won't they? I think that's very explicitly what it is. I don't know that originally that conversation is like, and the answer to am I a romantic comedy is yes, unequivocally. I think at one point it was like, yes, asterisk and rom-coms are complicated and like, let's poke a little bit at them while also enjoying the like rush of emotion that we get when two people fall in love. But I think that eventually the answer became just, yes, it is. And so what does that, what does that mean? What does that do to the narratives? 
I mean, I think it stopped being like a com. I think it was just like, it became like a romance. Like it's not really a rom comedy anymore at a certain point. I think you're right. I mean, at one point it stops being a rom-com. I would argue that at one point it stops being a sports narrative also. I don't know if you saw the end of the comic, but he does win the hockey. I know, but I have I have thoughts about how that fits into the sort of shape of typical sports narratives, and it doesn't. The winning part does, but the way that it unfolds ceases to be part of the tension, will they win, won't they win, that usually is in a sports narrative, and it becomes, of course he's going to win, it's fucking bitty, he gets everything he wants, this is how the story unfolds. As the author says in a blog post, right? This is what happens. He gets what he wants. That's not a sports narrative. It's also not a rom-com narrative. I don't even know if it's a romance narrative because the, the potential that like something won't happen is what gives a romance its propulsion forward. So I don't know what it is. A bitty show, I guess. You know what, Tomato, as far as I'm concerned, it's not even a narrative. Maybe not. Oh, man. Guys, here's what I have to tell you. I was so like, oh, fuck, we have to do this episode on chirping. And I did all this research thinking that would make it a good episode. But you just heard it. It's not. Uh, I can't believe that you think me making an unfunny post-structuralist joke isn't going to make this the best episode yet. I talked about parafictions. I thought, well, maybe we could go a little, we could lean a little Akathan. That would be a good direction for our podcast. But here's the ultimate truth. Getting through this one episode was awful because the next episode is the one I'm really horny for. And just having to like wait to like get to that juicy, juicy comic has been so hard. And that's why at this point of the writing, it's a rom-com. That tension you feel, that propulsion forward. All right. Anything else you want to say about chirping? Because I honestly think I'm exhausted. I think it's just another, another way of saying like making fun of somebody. I think only the fact that they have a particular word for it makes it specific to hockey. And also I think Biddy and Jack's falling in love chirps are pretty lame. Not impressed with that. Thank you, everybody, for your patience while I thought about things a lot. I'm glad that we have this podcast where people are not going to tell me, you're thinking too much about this comic. It's just a romantic comedy. All right. What's up next time? What are we, what are we waiting for? Oh, boy. Are you ready? Bad Bob Zimmerman. Oh, my God. I've been waiting so long to meet him, the man, the legend. He's not even in the strip. Uh, Four-time Stanley Cup winner. Four-time, right? It's four times, I think. Maybe more. Uh, We'll talk about it when we talk about Bad Bob Zimmerman. Next time on Check Displease. I'm pretty, I'm pretty fucking psyched. And I'm Secret. And I'm Tomato. All right, guys, thanks. See ya. Yeah, the team is made up of good guys, but you know, the team... He's a kid, and he's a good guy, and it's not about any one guy, but he's a good kid. Not any one player makes a game. They're all good guys. We're all trying our hardest. And, uh, you know, next time.